That was good. I mean, the, the name of Jesus and the, the power of our Savior, my Savior. If you're in Christ, your Savior. Uh, something beautiful. So we're in the book of Revelation. If you, have, if you were missed with us last week, uh, this is starting... Um, from now till the middle of November, looking at uh, the book of Revelation, passage by passage. And as I shared with everybody last week, I do not know all the answers. And if anybody tells you they have it all figured out, they are lying to you. Um, so um, just, uh, just tuck that away whenever you see that uh, nice looking preacher on TV or those two nice ladies show up at your door and they're giving you their material. Nobody has all the answers to the book of Revelation except for God himself. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this and we're going to talk about it and we're going to look at it. Now I'm going to make some bold proclamations to you, but I can guarantee you that the bold proclamations I make to you will come right off the page and you will be able to see them for yourself. It will not be some sort of veiled, you got to have my special insight mystery because I do not believe in that. I believe in the special insight of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, also, following up with that, just so you know and just so you're able to, to kind of participate, I realize that the book of Revelation can be confusing. I realize that I might not be able to address or answer any question that comes up in your head or your heart from this platform on Sunday morning. So on Wednesday nights at 6.30, right over here in our fellowship hall, we're just going to have a time where we can just kind of talk through, ask some questions and, and discuss a little bit. We're going to be looking at the same passage. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20 this morning. Wednesday night, we're going to look at it again, a little bit different angle, a little bit different approach, but it gives you an opportunity to say, you know what, hey, you were preaching about this Sunday, and, and I had a question, what, what does this mean? This wasn't clear for me. I can't promise you, I'm not going to promise you that I can give you the answer you're looking for. I can't promise you that I'm going to give you any sort of answer other than, let's see what we can find. But what's important to me is that each of us walk away with the ability to look at the word of God and grow together in our faith. That's why we're a church family. That's why we are here is not to say, you know what, I did the church thing, I checked that box off and I can go on about my week. It's so I can say, you know what, this is what the word of God did in my heart this week. This is how the word of God is shaping my life. That's why I'm inviting you to read through the New Testament with us uh, this year so that you can share with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with your friends and family that aren't even part of our church. What is the word of God doing in your life, in your heart? So 6.30 on Wednesday nights, we'll have that time of this past week, we sang a couple of songs. We took some time to pray together and then we look at the word of God together. So I want to invite you, if, if you're able to make it, I want you to be here Wednesday nights. We've got stuff for your students. We've got stuff for uh, your children. We've got stuff for your diaper wearing babies. Everybody is covered. If you're in the choir, if you want to sing, we've got choir practice going on. We've got a lot of things going on midweek. So let me ask you to come and be a part of that with us. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and pers perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice, the sound of a trumpet 
says, excuse me, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the seven lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze and when he had been made glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many rushing waters in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength when I saw him I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things that which are the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Lord, how beautiful is your word. How powerful and majestic is your truth. Lord Jesus, you are the first, the last, the son of the living God, the one who took what was invisible and made it visible, reaching into our lives to rescue us from death. And what we can say is, hallelujah, what a savior. What a savior. So we ask that you would fill us with your word. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit of God, take us from here into the world that you love with the proclamation of the good news that Jesus saves. We love you, Lord. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so let me ask you to do me a favor real quick. Close your eyes for just a second. I'm not gonna throw anything at you. I don't think. Picture Jesus. Start, start picturing when you hear the name Jesus. That, 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 that face, the, the, the body, the, the, the man, what is he doing? What is he saying? What does he look like? Is he terrifying to see? Is it beautiful? D does it make you want to give up everything you have and just latch on and cling to this Christ? All right, now open your eyes. What we have in this passage is a visible presence of Christ Jesus after the ascension. People saw him after he rose from the dead. But this is the time that he was seen after the ascension. And John's able to write about that. See, a lot of times when we picture Jesus, let's be real for a second, we're, we're picturing like Sunday school pictures, right? We're, we're picturing the images that, that are before us. 
Many of you might have even pictured our stained glass window. We, we have this, this, this somewhat peaceful, nice-looking Middle Eastern man, Jesus, that's there before us. And, and, and a lot of times, we do that because we think of things in human terms. Jesus was a man. Jesus did walk on this planet. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So we have that aspect of it. But what John does is brings us back into the eternal reality of who Christ Jesus was. So here's what we're going to do as we walk through this passage. We're going to start off by looking at the people that are in the scene. And then we're going to kind of look at what the message is. And then we're going to kind of break it down and look in our lives. So, so let's see who's involved in this passage. We start off with John. John is the first person we find involved in the passage. It says there that here I am, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So, so John is writing. We know John was the beloved disciple. He was, uh, he was the one... Um, Gave us the gospel of John, gave us first, second, and third John. At this time, John had been pastoring the church in Ephesus, um, and he had been leading that church to some, some, some great ministry there in the city uh, of Ephesus. And it says there that he's at Patmos. As I was on an island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Kind of sounds nice to be on an island, doesn't it? Man, some of you are sitting there looking at the forecast this week, and it's going to be like rainy and nasty all week long, right? Uh, we looked at the weather this morning. It's going to be some sun today, and then starting tonight, it's going to rain tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. The sun's going to peak out on Friday. It's going to rain again on Saturday. And everybody with kids is like, oh, no. Everybody with kids is wanting to chip in to raise money to build us a gym here at the church this week so the kids have somewhere to come and play, right? I mean, that's just what, that's what's happening. I mean, you're thinking, oh man, that what? Oh, maybe nice to be on, a, be on an island, right? Some of you already got yourself sitting up in a cabana down there in the Florida Keys somewhere, just, just watching the tides coming. That's not what John's doing. John's not on this beautiful Mediterranean isle enjoying a vacation. Oh yeah, I know you preachers. You raise all the money for the church and then you fly off on your personal jet and you go on these nice elaborate vacations. No, 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 no. That's not what John's got going on. John has been imprisoned because he was proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says there in this passage of scripture that he was on, on the island of Patmos because of what the gospel had brought to him. Because he refused to back down when people said, you need to be silent, Christian. He's, he, refused to, he refused to be silent when people said, you know what? Just Jesus is not really raised from the dead. And they took charges to Caesar. and They took charges to the officials because the world wants to silence the witness of the gospel. And John said, no, that's not who I am. Maybe 70 years ago, before I met this Jesus, you could have intimidated and got me to be quiet. But here I am, old man John, and I'm not going down. He's on the island of Patmos, an exile colony, a penal colony. He is imprisoned. And it says there that he's worshiping. Notice it says that he was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Woo, man, he's having church, man. How about that? Dude's in jail having church. Some of us can't even have church over coffee in our own living room, in the comfort of our house. But here he is in prison having church. 
Well, that brings us into connection with the second person in the passage, who is Jesus Christ. It says there that is in the spirit and he hears this voice. And this voice calls out to him and says, hey, you know what? Um, I've got a message for you. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And he lists them out there. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All of these churches in what we know as, today as Asia Minor. Um, if you're here Wednesday night, I'll give you a map. If you like maps, I'll give you a map. All of this is modern day Turkey. Wait a second. Do you know a whole lot about modern day Turkey? Modern day Turkey, you cannot legally proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ publicly. Modern day Turkey is part of an Islamic Muslim takeover. You've heard of the Crusades back in the day. Now, the, the Crusades were ill-attempted efforts of the Catholic Church to overrun the Holy Land with the gospel, and they did not do it the right way. The gospel wasn't part of it. It was all about conquest and military. Wrong. You're not going to do it that way. But right now, the place where Jesus is sending this letter, sending this message, right now they can't receive it. Does that mean Jesus failed? Absolutely not. It means that we as people fail to do what Christ commanded us to do. And it's on our doorstep, but we'll come back to that a little bit later. Here he says, write this down and send it. And then he starts describing Jesus. Now, just be honest with me for a second. When you closed your eyes and pictured Jesus, did you picture what he says there in chapter one? No takers on that? Some of you might've got the white hair part, right? Anybody? No? Look at what he says. I saw one standing among the seven golden lampstands like a son of man. He lists out who Jesus is, the son of man, the appearance of a human because Christ came into the flesh. He says, write what you have seen, what is and what will be. What he saw was the flesh of Christ Jesus on this earth. He says, here was the son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Oh, man, here we go. This is beautiful, right? This is a royal robe. This is authority. This is speaking to who Christ Jesus is, the son of God. Here he is, the one that could, as the son of man, take your sin and my sin. Now he's standing there with the full authority of God. And it says there in that passage of scripture, he says, not only was he with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like wool. Oh, the majesty's outlined. And now we have this beautiful authority. Wisdom is portrayed here. It speaks time and time again in the Old Testament, especially the book of Proverbs, that the white hair on a person is not a sign of age, but a sign of growing in wisdom. Woo, there's a lot of wisdom in this room this morning, isn't there? Hey, you young folks. Just because there's gray on top doesn't mean that there's nothing to be learned. He's speaking to wisdom. The wisdom of the Lord God. It was by wisdom, Proverbs 8 tells us, that he laid the foundation of the world. And John says, you know what? It was by Christ Jesus. Here we have the full wisdom of God on display. His head was, his hair were like wool, like white, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. You know what fire does? Fire doesn't just consume, fire purifies. Fire purifies. 
One of, one of the things that ecologists will tell us in order to, to main, and foresters will tell us in order to maintain a healthy fire, uh, a, a healthy forest is to go through periodically once every 25, 30 years and burn all the underbrush so that the trees that are there in the forest can actually have some strong nutrients because it purifies the ground that is beneath. When gold is made, some of you ladies have gold on this morning. Some of you man, men are wearing some gold this morning. That gold comes out and it's got all kind of dirt and debris and nasty. You know how they clean that? They set it to the fire so that it would melt and they'll pull everything off. Jesus' eyes are like fire because what he is demonstrating is that he sees everything you cannot hide. He will purify your life when he gets involved. Here he comes looking with an eye of flame fire. And man, you might be able to fool somebody. You might be able to hide behind somebody, but you can't fool or hide behind Christ. Excuse me. You can hide behind him, but you can't hide from him. You can hide and rest in the shadow of the cross, but you cannot hide from the all-knowing, all-perceiving, all-seeing eye of Jesus Christ. I can't either. Don't think that because sometimes I wear a coat and sometimes I wear a tie, but every Sunday I'm up here and I've got the word of God I'm proclaiming that I can hide behind this book and say, I'm scot-free. No, no, no. Jesus sees all because God will not be mocked. These eyes are a flame of fire. Notice he goes on just one step beyond that. He says, his feet were like burnished bronze. When it's been made to glow in the furnace how firm a foundation Jesus his feet planted solely Jesus said great and wise is the man who builds his house upon the rock he is the foundation and this burnished bronze you want some you want a good foundation right nobody wants to get out there and um, nobody wants to get out there and build their house on play-doh I mean just imagine you're building your house. Here you go. You're, man, you've been saving up, man. You've put plans into it. You've bought your tract of land. You're getting ready to go. And, and you've been, man, you've been saving for 30 years. You worked 30 years at a job you didn't really enjoy, saving your money so that when you got time to retire, you could build your own house. And man, you've got everything laid out. You've met with the architects. You've got all the permits. You've got everything. And you've met with your contractor. You're like, all right, we're going to build this house and everything. And they'll get out there. And you, I mean, you're so excited. You watch them. They dug the footings. They dug everything out there. And here they come to put the foundation in, and it's Play-Doh. And you ask the guy, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, Play-Doh will work. You ever, you ever, you ever left Play-Doh out? Of, here, here, this is your contractor talking to you. You've left Play-Doh out overnight. It gets rock hard. It'll be good. Yeah, we'll just put it in there, and everything will be all right. You're going to fire that contractor, aren't you? If not, somebody needs to fire you. You want a solid foundation. Jesus' foundation is who he is in eternity. The foundation of the world was set upon Christ Jesus who created all things at the discretion of God the Father through wisdom by the word where everything made that has been made and the foundation of who you are and who I am is in Christ Jesus who sees all, who is wise beyond measure, who has authority and majesty and he stands there in front of John. This is Jesus. Not the same picture you had a second ago, is it? He goes on. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now I want you to think about the tongue for Joe. Woo, I almost fell. Think about the tongue. I didn't have a solid foundation. <laughs> I want you to think about the tongue for just a second. 
The Bible speaks a lot about the tongue. And too often we use the tongue as a two-edged sword. We cut people one way and cut people like another. But out of the mouth of Christ proceeds a true two-edged sword. I want you to think about this with me just for one second, what John is describing for us about who Christ Jesus is. He's already told us in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And by the Word were all things made that have been made. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. So what John has already told us in the the book of John, chapter 1, is that Jesus is co-eternal with God. He is God himself and that he took on the flesh because he is the Word of God. We talk about the Word of God. We talk about the Bible. Here's what I want to tell you about the Bible this morning. Every page in this book, every page is about one thing, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Every page in this book is about what God has planned to do in your life, in my life, because of Christ Jesus. Yeah, there are a lot of things in there that don't make sense. There are a lot of things that make you scratch your head and say, how in the world did that happen? There are a lot of things in the Bible that make you just want to pause. But everything comes back to the centrality of Christ Jesus from before time began being God's solution and answer to your sin problem and mine. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that scripture, the Bible, the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Here's Christ, the two-edged sword. What does that two-edged sword do? It pierces between the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit. This Christ who can see all, this Christ who, who, who watches everything that we cannot hide from has the authority as the word of God to come in and correct and change and direct our lives according to his purpose and his will, the two-edged sword. And I want you to look at this last. It says, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When you walk out of the sanctuary here in just a, little bit, just a little bit, let me ask you to do something. Look at the sun. Not for long, because I don't want a lawsuit for making you go blind. I don't want you to go blind. Let me put it that way. I don't want you to go blind. But look at the sun in its full strength. You can't. It hurts. It pierces the eyes. And here we have this Christ whose face shines like the sun in in, in the light of his strength. And what he's describing is how Christ Jesus is the light of the world, the light of man by which we can see all things that are wrong and everything that's right because Christ Jesus has already seen and he brings illumination. That means he helps us understand who he is and what he's done and what the word of God does in our lives. And this is Jesus We're not talking about some guy that sat around for a while and figured out some stuff and wrote it down and said, we're talking about the creator of the world. And it says there that in his hand, he was holding the seven stars as he walks among the seven lampstands. See, the last people are the stars and the lampstands. The true star of the passage is Christ Jesus, but in his hand are something, stars. He tells us there at the end of the passage, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, here's, I want you to hear me clearly on this. He is not describing an angel like Gabriel or Michael or, or what we find in other passages of Scripture. The word angel there is the word messenger. 
So that's what an angel means. It means a messenger, one who bears a message. Jesus is speaking specifically of the pastors of these churches. That's right. I am your angel. No? Okay. Thought I'd try it. Didn't go. He's speaking of the pastors. He said, look, I am writing this letter and I want the seven, and he says the seven gold lampstands, these are the churches. So ultimately what we have in the book of Revelation is Christ Jesus in love with his bride, the church, in giving a letter of understanding to them, directly to them. And he says, I am among them. I'm holding them. It's a beautiful picture. So what's the message? What, 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 is he, what does he tell us? What, what is he going on here? So in verse 17 through 20, he talks about, says, when I saw him, I fell dead at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first, the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. That's a big thing, right? So therefore, write down these things that you've seen. First and foremost, we find that Christ Jesus has full authority. This is the central part of the message. Christ Jesus has full authority. If you remember over in the book of Matthew, probably one of the more preached on passages, especially in the modern uh, church, specifically in the Southern Baptist Convention, the Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 in the Great Commission. He starts off by saying, all authority has been given to me. God the Father has given the authority to Christ Jesus. And here he is in his robe with his golden sash. Here he is with the majesty of God, with the beauty and the brilliance of the being, the light of God, the light to, 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 to sinful man, right in the presence. He describes his authority. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, if you were with me last week, we read those exact same words in verse 8. Look with me, if you will, in chapter 1, verse 8. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Now, I don't want you to miss the significance of this shift. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, those are probably in red letters, are they not? If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you were taught that the red letters are the words of Jesus. But that says the Lord God. And now we get to verse 17, verse 18, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What is Jesus doing? He's letting you know that he is God in the flesh. He's letting you know that everything that you have read and everything you have seen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything that has been your experience in your heart as you've placed your faith in Christ is not some dream, is not some magical made-up mystery, is not something that is from the out, outer world. It is from God himself, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you, eternally existing together as one. And the Son came in the flesh to you and he has the authority of God because as Paul said, says in the book of Philippians, even though he was with God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself and took on our form. That is Jesus. He has the authority. So he says, don't be afraid. I'm glad he says that, by the way. If I'm John, if I'm in trouble, 
If I'm in prison and if I'm exiled to a penal colony and I'm trying to have my own little church worship service and all of a sudden there's a big loud voice behind me, the hair on the back of my neck stands up a little bit, right? All right, what was that? And then after that, you, you turn around and remember, John walked with Jesus for three years. John was there when Jesus hung on the cross and said, this is your mother, woman, this is your son. John was there when he, I mean, he was the one that stooped and looked into the empty tomb. He was there looking up at the sky as Jesus ascended and he turns around and he sees something that doesn't resemble what he saw the last time Jesus was around. Jesus says, don't be afraid. The presence of Christ has the authority to drive out fear. No matter what the fear is, whether you brought the fear on yourself or not, the presence of Christ has the authority to drive out fear. Why? Because he's the first and the last. He was there before your fear. He'll be there after your fear. He was there before you were thought of. He'll be there well after you're forgotten. But behold the Lamb of God that was slain for your sin and my sin, that in the name of Christ Jesus in eternity you will not be forgotten. You're going to come and go in this world. You're going to. I'm not going to be here forever. I want to be here as long as God God will let me be here, as long as y'all put up with me. I want to be here for a long time. I don't want to move again. I like y'all. But... Does anybody remember who was the pastor here in 1931? No. 1941? 1951? 61. Oh, we got got to take her on 1960. See, here's my point. This church has been led by phenomenal men of God for over nearly 200 years. We would not be here today if it was not for the faithful testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ through men and women, through families, time in, week in, week out, day in, day out, right here. But the reality is, is we forget people, right? Jesus was there before. Jesus will be there at the end. And being there at the end means that he's standing there by the Father of God. And when you appear before him, he says, God, this one's ours. I was there He received me, she received me, she took me at my hand, took me at my word. I am the first and the last. You have no fear, I have authority. That's what Christ tells us. And he goes on and he tells us that his authority is the message of the gospel. You wanna know how Christ has authority? Look at what he says about himself. I love this. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. He was the firstborn of the dead. He says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. What was the gospel? Christ Jesus came, the son of God, into this place, and he died on a cross for your sin and for my sin. But he didn't stay dead. We had the Passover, right? The Passover comes, and the Passover was the slain lamb to cover the blood of the lamb, to cover the people of Israel, to mark who was God's people. And then when Christ Jesus comes at the time of the Passover, a couple of thousand years later, what ends up happening? The blood of the lamb covers our sin. So we're marked as the people of God. But you know what? It wasn't about the slain lamb. It was about the lamb that rose again, victorious. 
Yes, victorious. He rose again. He says, I was dead, but guess what? Now I'm alive forevermore. That's huge. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that Christ Jesus wants his church to hear first and foremost. You know how I have authority? It's because I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. Death will never touch me again. Man. That's an authoritative statement to make. All right, y'all know this about me. I like college football. Tomorrow night, there's a small game happening in New Orleans between Clemson Tigers. Who's the other team? Oh, LSU, LSU Tigers. My wife's a Clemson grad, so I've got to, you know, go along with it. At the end of tomorrow night, one team is going to raise a trophy. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Whoever wins the game tomorrow night will be able to raise that trophy as the spoils of victory and say, look, this is proof that I have won. And Jesus says, I am alive forevermore and I've got the keys to show you that it's real because I am holding the keys to death and the keys to hell because I have conquered death and I have conquered hell and I want my people to know it. Man. But we walk around defeated. It's a myth of gospel message. It's a message of victory. It's a message of triumph. And Jesus says, don't you forget it because I've got the trophy to prove it. That's our savior. That's what he did for us. And so why does he want us to know it? Because he wrote us a letter about it, right? We have this Christ Jesus demonstrating his care for his people. Look at what he says. Therefore, because this is who I am, because this is what I've done, write these things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after these things. That is a caring statement to make. Let me give you something that's coming up because I love you. But then he circles them in. He pulls them in a little bit and says, I want you to know this a little bit more about me. Look at where I am. John, as you're writing these things, I want you to write what you see currently right now. Where am I? I'm standing in the midst of my people. I'm standing right here in the thick of it, right here in the rough of it. You're under persecution. You're in prison because you're proclaiming the word of God about who I am. And I'm standing right here in the bunker with you because I care about you. That's the love of Christ. He says, I'm right here among these lampstands. I'm right here among these churches. And guess what? I'm taking the pastors and I'm holding them in my hand. It's not a control, it's a love. It's a grace and a mercy that Christ Jesus bestows upon his people. He cares for us. Did you have a good week last week? Jesus cares about that. Did you have a week that kicked you in the teeth and laughed at you last week? Jesus cares. He cares for his people. So much so that he would go to the cross for you, but then he would rise from the dead and give you a message of hope and victory. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with everything that we've just seen in this passage of scripture and how it all plays out? Let's start here. 
The Holy Spirit is vital for experiencing God. The Holy Spirit is vital. Notice how all this starts. John's in the Spirit. John is proclaiming the beauty of Christ. John is allowing the Holy Spirit to fill him, even when it might have been an off day. And I know you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I read that verse. It said that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So one day a week, I'm going to go get in the Spirit. Did you know that in John's day, there wasn't a Lord's Day? There wasn't a church day on the Lord. There, it wasn't a, all right, it's Sunday, got to go to church. That, that started la- after John. Every day was the Lord's day. The first century church lived in, this is the day that the Lord has made, therefore I will rejoice and be glad in it. They carried that from the book of Psalms over to who they were because every day was a day to live in the resurrection of Christ. So it might've been a Sunday, but it might've been a Tuesday that he is full of the Spirit. And it's being full of the spirit that allows him to see the beauty of what Christ Jesus has done. But most of us, we barely get full of the spirit on Sunday. Most of us drag into church. Man, we're on fumes. And I know life gets hard. I know life stinks. I know that life will kick you in the teeth and laugh at you. I've had it happen. It'll do it. In the most cruel and vicious ways. But if we're going to make it through, we must be full of the Spirit. Especially if we are the people of God. See, as the people of God, we have this unique position to be demonstrators of the power of God in a cruel, vicious world. We have the responsibility of showing what life in Christ looks like to a world that just doesn't really care about our Christ. Unfortunately, we live in a society where we have to show them that there is a reason to care about Christ so that they will care about Christ, that there's a reason to be concerned about sin because they don't really care about sin. Which is why you and I have to have the Spirit. You and I have to have the power of God present in our lives. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And being in the spirit on the Lord's day, I was worshiping and I saw something beautiful. You remember when Jesus was at the well over in John chapter four, he and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. Uh, and it said they had to go through Samaria. Every other Jew would go around Samaria, but then they went straight through it, man. They said, I don't care about the reputation of, of Samaria. They went straight through. And here they go. They're getting there into Samaria. And Jesus says, I'm going to stop here by the well. Y'all go in and get something to eat. And, and I'll see you here in a minute. And a woman comes and Jesus is dialoguing with this woman about what what the kingdom of God looks like. You know, the Samaritan woman. And he tells her, you know what? I know you're not married. You've had five husbands and now you're living with a guy that's not even your husband. So I know who you are. And this woman's just dumbfounded. Like, how how do you know these things? And he says in chapter four, verse 26, when the topic of worship comes up, he says, the time is coming is now here when the father will look for those who will worship in spirit." And in truth, you want victory in 2020? You want victory this year? It comes when the victory of the Lord and the presence of the Spirit is so evident in your life that no one can undermine or no one can speak against what God is doing because you're full of the Spirit. 
That's what John's got going on in Revelation. And if you want to make sense of the book of Revelation, you better get the Spirit too, because if the Spirit gave it, the Spirit will explain it. The second we find is that Jesus is worthy. Quite honestly, the most profound statement that I can make about the entire book of Revelation is that one right there. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of an imprisoned man proclaiming Christ, even though that's what got him thrown in jail. He's worthy of someone falling dead, uh, seeming to fall dead at his feet as though there was nothing else that, that could ever take. But Christ Jesus too often gets bumped down the list. We don't mean to. We really don't mean to. But we get duty driven. So saying Jesus is worthy becomes a statement of, well, I went to church on Sunday. Check that one off my list and I'll get on with the rest of the week. See, to live a life that says Jesus is worthy says, okay, because of who Christ Jesus is, because of what he has done in my life, every second of every day is worth his attention, worth my devotion to him so that nothing escapes his ever seeing eye. Because he's going to see it anyway, right? He's going to know. So he comes to you and puts something then leading you to do something. You say, well, I'm not really sure about that. Is he worthy or is he not? This is a question I have to ask myself all the time. Is Christ Jesus worth my allegiance and my devotion and my obedience here when I might would rather do this here? John says, I saw this image and when I saw it, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And you know what he said to me? Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm going to tell you about my authority so you know that I'm real about what I'm about to tell you. Because Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And because Jesus is worthy, we have a job to do. We, we have a job to do. It is no mistake that the church is pictured by Christ Jesus as a lampstand. See, a lamp is put out there in order to shine a light, right? This past week, um, a couple of weeks ago, we took our Christmas tree and our Christmas decorations down. And the house just always looks naked when you take the Christmas decorations down, right? It's just kind of, it's like the saddest day of the year when all the Christmas decorations are put up. You're like, <sighs> partly because if you are in a house with small children like we are the Christmas decorations hide fingerprints on the walls and scuffs and scratching everything but but we've got this corner in our living room where we put up our tree and we rearrange the furniture a different way this year like oh yeah that's nice we're gonna keep it this way after the new and then the tree's gone and we put this rocking chair that used to be in my grandmother's house we put it back over there in that corner and I love that chair don't get me wrong I love it but it just looks empty over there and I don't remember what we were talking about yesterday or what we were doing, but Christy made the comment to me. She's like, we, we need a lamp or something over there in that corner. Because we do. We've got, a, we've got a ceiling fan. That's great. I'm not a big overhead light person. I'd rather have three or four lamps on in the room and not an overhead light because to me, up lights give you a little bit better ambiance. Just preference, right? So you got that center light in the middle and it just kind of leaves some dark corners, right? But you put a lamp over there. 
And it shines up there in that corner. You can see cobweb that you missed. And you can see, you can see a crack in the, in the caulk over here in your crown mold. You see all these things. But you got this light, it, it shines. Because you have a lamp to shine light, right? And, and Jesus says that he is there with his lamp stands. Those that were specifically placed in Ephesus and Pergamum and Sardis and Laodicea and Thyatira, they were placed there to shine a light, but not their own light, to shine the light of Christ. And they had a job in their community to be a reflection of what Christ Jesus had done. And church, we've got this same job to do today. And it's huge. It is a massive job that you and I cannot do by ourselves. And realistically, collectively as a group, we can't do it alone either. We've got to have the Holy Spirit. See, I love this image of the lamp and the lampstands because it comes up in the book of Zechariah chapter four. In Zechariah chapter four, there's a picture of the lamp that is given and it's the, there are two lamps and the two lamps are positioned at the base of an oil tree. See, in Jesus's day, in the first century, if you were gonna burn a lamp, you didn't go and flip a light switch or touch it or anything like that. You had to light a fire and you set some olive oil on fire. You ever burnt olive oil? It doesn't smell too good when it burns. Most oils don't smell great when they burn. But this is, what, this is an oil-burning lamp. And in the picture of Zechariah chapter 4 is the eternal word of God. The, 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 oil, the oil was dripping constantly into the, the, the lamps so that their flame never went out. They had a consistent source. And I love this image. One commentator said it this way. He says, the church is the lamp. A receptacle that is to give light and darkness. However, like a lamp, the church is helpless to fulfill its mission without fuel. Oil throughout the New Testament is used for anointing. Priest, or excuse me, the Old Testament is used for anointing. Priests, kings, prophets, tabernacle furnishing, and books were anointed. Particularly in the case of Saul. The meaning of this anointing was that, the, that of the empowering, excuse me, the meaning of this anointing was that of the empowering for an assignment by the Spirit of God. So then, oil has become a symbol for the Holy Spirit, a concept observed in the New Testament, specifically in James chapter 5. When the church is filled with the Spirit of God, listen to this. When the church is filled with the Spirit of God, then she is able to give light to the world. Minus such a presence and anointing, despite our outer appearances, a church has no real possibility of fulfilling the Great Commission mandate. Translation, if you and I get serious about the Holy Spirit of God and allow the Spirit of God to fill us, we become these ever-burning lamps that are shining the beautiful light of Christ. And First Baptist Fairburn will see a day when people will say, I need what that church has because that church has what's real. But it starts with us getting real about 